Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 11, where we are going to hear the great prophet with a capital P uh, rebuking the Israelite leaders of his day in a manner uh, not too unlike um, the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 3. So Luke 11, verses 37 to 52. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others." Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Let's turn now to Micah chapter 3. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Micah 3. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, 
who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, who make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Amen. You may be seated. I've been listening to a, a fascinating audiobook recently by David McCullough about the Johnstown Flood. Uh, and if you're from around here, you've probably known about the Johnstown Flood for a long time, but I, I just started learning about it quite recently. Um, it's been really interesting. Uh, just to recap the story for those who might not be familiar, in, in, it was the year 1889, and there was a, a dam on the Connema River upstream from Johnstown that catastrophically failed during some just massive uh, rainstorms. And literally billions of gallons of water went rushing downstream, um, down the, the river valley, just wiping out completely everything in its path, um, including the entire city of Johnstown, just gone, wiped off the map practically, and claiming more than 2,000 lives. Huge disaster. And one of the things that's so tragic about it, in hindsight, is that it could have been and should have been prevented. Because people had warned about the integrity of that dam, which was owned by this sort of exclusive uh, hunting and fishing club for the kind of who's who uh, business people of Pittsburgh, which was, uh, of course, booming with the steel business at the time. Um, but those warnings were repeatedly ignored and dismissed and treated as alarmist and unfounded, ignorant overreactions. Now, nah, everything's fine. I've checked myself, you know. There's people claiming, oh, everything's okay. Um, in Johnstown itself, people had wondered for years, well, I wonder what would happen if that dam did, fa- did fail. Um, but most people just sort of assumed... I guess everything will be okay. I guess other people have checked this, and there's nothing we can do about it anyway. And the, the prospect of the dam failing became something that people kind of joked about and laughed off until, of course, it finally happened with all those tragic consequences. Now, I'd like you to think about Judah and Jerusalem 
in the time of the prophet Micah, as Micah describes it in this chapter. Judah's most powerful people wielding their position recklessly and without accountability. Uh, People withholding, downplaying, twisting the truth for their own convenience and profit. Uh, And all along, these same people saying, everything's fine, no disaster shall come upon us. Until one day the disaster did come. It did come. Supernatural disaster. Supernatural disaster of the judgment of God. And so with that analogy in mind, I'd like us to consider this chapter in three parts this morning. Number one, a power corrupted absolutely, verses 1 through 4. Second will be two different kinds of prophecy, verses 5 through 8. And then verses 9 to 12, a false sense of security. So a power corrupted absolutely, two different kinds of prophecy, and a false sense of security. Now the first thing to notice here is that there's a connection uh, between the last verse of chapter 2 and the first verse of chapter 3 that's easy to miss. This is something Bruce Walke points out very helpfully for kind of seeing the flow of thought here for Micah, how these various prophetic oracles kind of fit together and relate to one another. Last time, we ended with the imagery of the Lord leading the faithful remnant victoriously out of Jerusalem. The king passes on before them, the Lord at their head, verse 13, and hang on to that word head because now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. So chapter 2 ends with the Lord at the head of his people, but now Micah turns around to rebuke those uh, whose position and power place them at the head of God's people in a lesser sense. And yet, what are they doing? They are using that position and power to the opposite effect when you compare it to that imagery of the Lord leading Israel in victory. See, these people are supposed to uh, represent to the people of Israel the, the character of God and the rule of God. They're supposed to embody that and convey that, mediate that to God's people by promoting good and doing justice and punishing evil in the land. That's their responsibility as the leaders. Is it not for you to know justice, Micah asks? You had one job, in other words. You had one job. You're supposed to represent the justice of God in your leadership over the people of God. Uh, But what have those leaders done instead? They've done the exact opposite. The exact opposite. They're not just wrong, they're exactly wrong because they now hate the good and they love the evil. It's not just that they're lazy. It's not just that they're kind of falling down on the job, not working hard enough at carrying out their calling in Judah's government. It's that they're actually working very hard, but in all the wrong ways. Micah's language gets very graphic here as he tries to visualize in this shocking way the, the, the rapacious, greedy cruelty of these people who are supposed to be the protectors. They're supposed to be the ones who punish thieves and swindlers and violent criminals and so on. But instead of stopping that sort of thing, they are actually doing it themselves. They tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Mike is not mincing words here. He's using this very extreme imagery 
to bring home that this is not a little problem. It's not a situation where, you know, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes sometimes. No, there has been a total reversal. The rulers of God's people are doing exactly the opposite of what God has called them to do, is they are preying on God's people instead of protecting them. He goes on, you haven't just torn skin from flesh and flesh from bone, but if if that's not far enough, you then take the bones and you break them, and, and you take that flesh you've torn off and you chop it up into little pieces and cook it in a cauldron. So all of this so that you can feed your own greed, so you can consume the livelihoods of the people who are under you in order to enrich yourselves. And why do they do all this? Well, it's really the same as in chapter 2 that we saw last time. It's because they can. It's because they can. It's because there's no one there to stop them in wielding their absolute power. They have become corrupt, absolutely. But Micah is here to tell them that, in fact, their power is not as absolute as they think as they've been treating it. Mike is here to tell them there is someone to stop them. And a day is coming when just like they have turned a deaf ear to the cries of the people they've oppressed, as Bruce Walkie points out, the, the Lord is going to turn that around. When the judgment comes, they are the ones who are going to cry and not be heard. And they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them because they made their deeds evil. You know that wonderful priestly blessing from number six that we sometimes use for the benediction. The Lord causes his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you. It's that symbol of ultimate blessing for the Lord to be looking at you and to have that face-to-face connection with the Lord as he, he is looking at you with, with love and, and blessing. Well, this is a symbol then of ultimate curse for God to hide his face, to turn away, and to ignore their pleas when, at last, the judgment falls and that window of opportunity to repent has closed permanently for these people. And this is a warning, uh, very practically, for all of us. All of us, to one degree or another, have influence over some other people in our lives. And whenever we have some degree of authority or power or influence over others, that could be in government, it could be in the church, pastors, elders, deacons, teachers, it could be in the workplace, it could be in your family, husbands, parents, other kinds of relationships. This, this warning is for all of us. How are we using that influence when we have it, big or small, even if it's just a... Big brother or sister to a little brother or sister. All of us have some kind of influence over someone else. And the question is, am I using that influence to protect and nurture and help those under me in that way? Or am I turning that responsibility around backwards, making them pay so that I can make myself happy, to maximize my own convenience? See, and the greater the influence that you have over others, don't don't underestimate the influence that you have. Even if you're not in government, even if you're not in a position of power, there's always somebody looking up to you, depending on you. And the greater that influence is, the greater your responsibility before God. Don't abuse it. Don't ever sacrifice them 
to please yourself. When the whole Bible is about the Lord doing exactly the opposite for you. Okay, let's see. Verses 1 through 4 then are addressed to the heads and rulers, these people with political and economic power. Uh, Verse 5 starts to address a different group of people with a different kind of influence in Israel, and these are the prophets, the prophets. And so if the first group is supposed to defend good over against evil, the second group is supposed to be defending truth over against falsehood and deception. Once again, everything has been turned upside down. The opposite is going on here too, right? These prophets are not concerned with telling the truth. They are concerned with saying what will make them popular, for example. What will put food in their mouths. Last chapter uh, rebuked people for only listening to what they wanted to hear. Well, this chapter is rebuking the prophets for the other half of that equation, which is saying only what the people want them to say. And, and not saying what people don't want them to say. It's not about the truth for them. It's about keeping up their livelihoods. They, they need people to like them and their message if, if they want to keep maintaining the, the lifestyle that they're used to. And so they'll preach very peaceful, very feel-good messages uh, if that's what people want to hear. And they'll, they'll maybe save up their they're kind of fire and brimstone mode for the, for the people who aren't so generous to them. And so the Lord is going to judge these preachers uh, just like he's going to judge the rulers. If that's how you're going to treat your prophetic office, Micah says, then and guess what? You're not going to get any kind of revelation from God anymore. That's for sure. Whatever was real about your prophetic gift, maybe at one time. If there ever was a time when you were receiving real revelation, real spiritual insight from God, that is going to go away. Why? Because you've been withholding what you did have from the people of God. You've been giving them instead what's comfortable for them and convenient for you. And so the result is that now you're not going to get any revelation from God at all. You're going to be completely in the dark. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. And it's going to be really embarrassing. You're going to be ashamed, because you're not going to be able to demonstrate any real supernatural insight. It's going to be obvious that you're just making all this up, because there's nothing real and divine behind your messages. And when the judgment comes, the judgment you said was not coming. And the people are looking for answers, and they're wondering, well, why didn't you tell us? You're going to have no answers for them, because God is not going to be answering you. And notice that that judgment on the prophets is the same as the judgment on the rulers. Verse 4, he will not answer them. And then verse 7, there is no answer from God. I've called the second point two different kinds of prophecy, because in verse 8, Micah um, contrasts this sort of self-serving mercenary mentality of the false prophets with his own prophetic ministry. But as for me, he says, so there's a contrast there, and, and Micah's prophetic ministry has four important characteristics that the ministry of the false prophets does not have. What are they? Well, number one, it is powerful. 
it is powerful. So those, those feel-good messages of the false prophets are really weak. They're anemic because there's no truth. There's no reality. There's no divine authority behind them. But the word of God, when you hear the true word of God, what is that like? Well, it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, you remember from Isaiah. And where does that power come from? Well, that's the second thing that distinguishes Micah's true prophetic ministry. It is spiritual with a capital S. In other words, it's directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit who has anointed Micah for his prophetic ministry and who is the one who is actually speaking through Micah to God's people. Remember what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21. No prophecy, that is no true prophecy, was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in true prophecy, it is the power of the Holy Spirit that is working, not just the power of a, of a charismatic personality of an individual man who's very gifted. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that's bringing God's truth to bear mightily upon God's people. It reminds me of what Jesus himself says in Luke 4 at the beginning of his own preaching ministry when he quotes Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim. Jesus' ministry of preaching was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was there to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came proclaiming the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit as the ultimate prophet, as we said earlier with a capital P. And that good news for the poor, that liberty of the captives and so on, that's closely related to the third characteristic of Micah's ministry over against the false prophets. Number three, it is just. It is just. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might. See, telling people what they want to hear, what they'll pay to hear, that is fundamentally unjust. It seems like it's being nice. It seems like it's being kind to those people by not telling them hard things, but it's actually very unjust to them, right? Just like the rulers are taking from God's people and not giving back, the prophets are doing the same thing. They're taking their livelihoods, but they're withholding the truth, the reality of the situation. They're leaving people without the warning that they desperately need of the judgment that's coming and the need to repent. They're not giving that to the people when it's their responsibility to do so. And that brings up the fourth characteristic of Micah's ministry, which is that it is forthright about sin. It's forthright about sin. Micah does not mince words here, obviously, from the first three verses of the chapter. Micah does not shade the truth. He does not pull his punches out of fear of giving offense. He tells it like it is. He declares to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. See, what makes Micah different from the other prophets is his willingness to tell the hard truths, to speak up with an unpopular message, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the truth, for the sake of the honor of the Lord, and importantly, for the sake of God's people, for the sake of the people he's ministering to. If nobody preaches sin and judgment to them, how are they going to know? How are they going to repent? Somebody's got to do it. And so Micah raises his hand. He says, that's the kind of prophet that I'm going to be by the grace of God. And in verses 9 through 12, then, it is, in fact, that unpopular message of transgression and sin that nobody wants to hear 
That is what Micah now proclaims to round out this chapter. Uh, And to begin with, he goes back over the themes he's already brought up. There's some repetition here. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Same themes as the first four verses. Um, Then in verse 11, he brings up the prophets again. His prophets practice divination for money. Just like the political leaders give judgment for a bribe, they're all on the take here. But that's not all. Uh, Micah is an equal opportunity gadfly. And so uh, there's nobody in Israel that he is not willing to offend if the truth requires it. And so in verse 11, he implicates even the priests. Even the priests are are, uh, caught up in this culture of bribery. It's priests teach for a price. Uh, typically, we think of priests' main job as offering the sacrifices and running the, the temple, right? But one of the big jobs that the priests are given in the law of God is to teach the people about the law of God, to instruct the people on its requirements, to help them to keep it in their daily lives. Um, but you can imagine how that job could become corrupt, too. Uh, Leslie Allen points this out. What, what if a particular law of God is kind of inconvenient or unpopular? Uh, people might not like us. People might not keep supporting us if we really insist on that law. So maybe we'll just relax that one a little bit. Maybe we'll make up some kind of mumbo-jumbo about you know following the spirit of the law instead of the letter of the law and, and basically teach people how they can uh, keep that law without actually keeping it. You know, those kinds of things. And this is where it all really comes to a head. Verse 11b, all of that corruption. All of that oppression, all of that deception. And yet, and yet, what do these leaders do? Somehow they've convinced themselves. They've convinced themselves that God is on their side. That's what they think. After all of that, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. This is so much like the religious leaders in Jesus' day, thinking, oh, God is on our side. They just take it for granted. Of course God is going to bless us because we're the leaders, right? We're the religious people. And along comes Jesus, and he says, you are blind guides. You devour widows' houses. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter the kingdom of God yourselves. You've actually hindered those who were entering. He talks about how you love those seats of honor. You love your long robes and your long prayers, but you're hypocrites. You're going to receive a greater condemnation precisely because of your leadership positions and the ways that you've abused them. And Micah says it's because of you. It's because of you that Jerusalem is going to be plowed as a field and turned into a heap of ruins. Now you could say, well, in the short term, um, Jerusalem is going to be spared, like Nineveh, Jerusalem is going to be spared of that total destruction at the hands of the Assyrians, right? Because, well, because Hezekiah leads the people in repenting and repenting. And so for the present, that crisis is averted. But in the long run, this is exactly what's going to happen to Jerusalem just about a century later. Why? Because Jerusalem's leadership is going to persist in these same kinds of behaviors. And so eventually Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by Babylon, for many of these exact same reasons that don't go away permanently, uh, despite Hezekiah's reforms. And the tragedy 
of all of that, well, one aspect of the tragedy, anyway, is that these people have convinced themselves that they're okay. That no disaster is coming and that the Lord is on our side. It's like that Johnstown flood. We don't want to think about it. Everything, we're sure everything's fine. How, how could it not be? How could it not be? It's this, it doesn't make sense. It's not rational. It's this self-justifying kind of circular reasoning with the result that they're actually really living in denial, self-deceived by their own arrogance and complacency. And this is why, this is why, as people of God listening to the word of God, it's so important for us to, to welcome and listen with patience to the hard parts of the word of God. Um, God's word frequently is not easy. It's not always gentle with us. It's not supposed to be. Um, God does not intend his word to be sentimental and feel good. He does not intend for it to be all inspirational and comforting all the time. Um, positive, encouraging, like the jingle goes. That's, that's a very one-sided, very narrow presentation of Christianity. It's not the whole counsel of God. It's one that doesn't leave room for Micah 3.8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. But you know his ministry does have room for that. It's the ministry of the Lord Jesus. The Savior who came to provide the solution, the remedy, the sacrifice for your sin is also the one who declares to you your sin, convicting you and calling you to repentance. It's also following him, the ministry of his apostles. And of every faithful preacher ever since has been committed to proclaiming, as Paul said, the whole counsel of God, not just the comfortable parts, not just the inspirational or sentimental or positive and encouraging parts. What we should be looking for and listening for and longing for as God's people is a complete Christianity, the whole gospel, the gospel of faith and repentance, judgment and salvation. The one that reminds us that the wages of sin, and not just sin in general, but your particular sins, particularly the wages of those sins, is death. That's what you deserve. The free gift of God. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ Jesus, who endured this judgment of his own body becoming plowed as a field and a heap of ruins on the cross in your place. I said earlier that the great tragedy of the Johnstown flood was that it was preventable. There were people pointing out the danger. The information was out there, but the people wouldn't listen. They didn't want to hear the hard reality. 
That's a lesson we need to learn from history. But it's a lesson we need to learn, especially here from the Word of God. The prophecy of Micah today is calling you to let down your defenses and to welcome the hard news of your sin so that you may not be excluded from the good news of the forgiveness of sins and the rescue from that judgment that is coming upon the world, ready or not. Let's pray. Our great God, we're so thankful that you are so unconcerned with whether we like what you have to say or not. That that you give us the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Because that is what will give us life. That is what will give us hope. That is what will wrench us out of our complacency and slumber and bring us face to face with reality, bring us into the light, bring us to a place where our sins can be openly dealt with and openly forgiven, and we can be openly declared righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us in his sacrifice and obedience and his resurrection from the dead. So we take refuge in him together, asking that you would have mercy upon us and spare us from that ferocity of the judgment to come that our sins deserve. Lord, help us always to welcome not just the easy and inspirational parts of your word, but all of the inspired word of God, including the hard parts. Um, So we might have hope in knowing the whole counsel of God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.